Welcome to Now with Steve Rio. On this podcast, I seek to define what it means to live a good life. How do we stay connected and aligned with our values and our purpose? How do we prioritize what's most important to us? And how do we optimize and make the most of the time we have in this life? Today's conversation is with Ryan Lalonde. He's president and partner at MLA Canada. You can find them at mlacanada.com. Ryan is also an investor. We're actually co-investors on one project and hopefully more in the future. He's an advisor and mentor. He's a father, a husband. And he's one of the sharpest guys that I know. And we met through, well, I'm actually not exactly sure how we met, but I believe we got to know each other because uh, Ryan joined the Nature of Work Alpha Trial back in 2019. And since then, we've just deepened our relationship through mutual interests. And this conversation really reflects the conversations that Ryan and I have in private. We spent close to two hours going back and forth about pretty much every topic you could imagine. Ryan ended up having a lot of questions for me, which was unexpected, but a lot of fun. And we talked about things like leadership, personal development, personal responsibility. We also talked about things like optimization, habits, routines. Honestly, the list goes on and on. So let's just jump into the conversation. I know you're going to get a ton of value from this one. Ryan is a really thoughtful guy and it was my pleasure to sit down with him. And I hope that we will be able to do a part two very soon. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And if you do, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And if you have one extra minute, please leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. You can find me on Instagram at Steve Rio. And you can find out more about how to transform the way you work, live, and feel with the Nature of Work Foundations program at natureofwork.co. I always start by asking just what uh, what is your LinkedIn bio or your corporate bio leave out about who you are? Like, how would you describe yourself outside of that? Oh man, I, well, I guess first of all, I'm not certain that I even manage my LinkedIn bio, so I don't even know what's on there. But, <laughs> you um, don't even know who you are on LinkedIn. <laughs> I really don't. I'm 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 so socially disconnected when it comes to online uh, platforms, um, and I think a lot of that is just totally by purpose. Yeah, um, actually, quite happy that I am. I think at times, but. I think if if there was a bio on there and and hopefully it's written well, um, I would say probably some of the things that don't necessarily come through on it, I, I would guess is is going to be things like, you know, like my my passions uh, towards uh, exercise and wellness. I I suspect that you know it would leave out um, how important my family is to me. Um, I think these are things that people would just assume or take for granted if they knew me. But um, if you didn't, and that might be new. Um, I also, I'm a bit of a geek at times too. Like I just, I love, I love really challenging, and uh, and and I'm, I'm really really comfortable with change, but change that kind of moves at my own pace. And and before like I can jump in that change, I really need to understand it, and I need to do enough research to feel comfortable with the content or comfortable with the direction. And and I think those are things that are kind of hard and might not come across very well mm-hmm. online. I'm a, I'm a reflector all day long. Like I'll, I'll I'll engage in any conversation throughout the day, and I'm. I'm going to dwell on that conversation and and really try to understand it and think long and hard about it. Same thing for the outcomes of our business. Same thing for maybe uh, personal relationships. 
uh, they, they move me and, and they have a huge impact. And uh, I suspect that, although I don't necessarily show it at the time, uh, it, it's something that you know I, I tend to go very introspective on uh, yeah. later in the day or, or certainly in the evenings. Yeah, it's definitely something I've enjoyed about our conversations that you're, A, you're always digging for a lot of depth in, in subjects and the research and, and, and you can tell you've put a lot of thought into things. Like you've, you've yeah, I, it always comes across actually. Well, you're, you're one of the easiest guys I've, I, I, I probably have in my phone to talk to you too. I, I can't think of anyone else that's more well read on a wider range of topics, like whether we're talking audio equipment or we're talking psilocybin, you yeah. know, like you seem to have uh, a depth of experience or some expertise around all of it. So it's been, it's been really that's refreshing. Cool. Thanks, man. And um, so, tell me uh, quickly about just about MLA. Um, I'm interested in how well a uh, how you describe what you do in sort of a nutshell, but also how the company came together. Because I understand it, it came together as it was, I don't know if it's a merger or a partnership. Uh, how'd that come together? Oh yeah, like the company is for sure. You know, it's our life. Um, when I think about uh, where it started, it was it was all in 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 real estate. We we started a small. A team back in 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 the mid two thousands. I had a partner, Ryan Hawk, um, and uh, and you know we were able to grow relatively quickly. Um, that team expanded, and we were able to find these incredible leaders, um, Shane McQuiston, who is now our COO uh, and also a partner in all of our businesses, uh, came on came on board very early. And then we just had the luxury of of starting some really interesting brands um, that were going after specific niches and marketplaces. Twenty sixteen. Uh, we've we we had always maintained a really close relationship with the industry. Cameron McNeil, the owner of Mac, was one of those relationships, and uh, because we had so much alignment in 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 vision of where we wanted things to go in the future, we were we were fortunate enough that we were able to bring a deal together. Cool. And uh, and we've spent the last four years really going through that process of merge, and and out of it, just having these these incredible opportunities in front of us around how we how we support our clients, how we support our staff. Just taking a lot of pride in the work that we do, mm-hmm. right, and being able to do that to a higher level because we have uh, more scale than maybe what either firm was enjoying previous. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, uh, um, it's not easy to, to 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 merge like that or to bring two companies together. So I'm just interested, like, what that process was like, or what you learned, or what was the hardest part or the easiest part, or you know, any reflections on that? I guess you know, you could ask me that question. Uh, on every anniversary of the merge, and I right. would probably feel like at the time we nailed it, we're through it, and then a year later you'd ask the same question. And I would say we're still learning, and so I think the the one common theme for us is that every year we're learning, and every year it gets better. I think that it took time. I think we made a ton of mistakes. Uh, we were we were hopeful, and maybe someone maybe call us naive or ignorant, but we were really hopeful that 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 new vision, that newfound vision. Would be really well understood, and that we had done a good job communicating that to our team members and, and to our partners uh, in development. But I think what we realize is that there's always there's always opportunity to do a bit a bit of a better job. And and if there was any early failings, it was because we were we were maybe blind to that fact that that people didn't necessarily understand what we were doing, and why we we're doing it, and uh, and we didn't communicate nearly as well as we should have. And so I think a lot of the challenge that we had early on in the merge. It's probably the same challenge that all organizations have when they come together, and that's that's trying to figure out what is that north star, mm-hmm. and and how do we how do we build the right team members around that vision, um, and and the hardest part about a merge is that some of the skill sets and some of the seats on the bus 
um, that you had previous that were really important to either organization really do change. And yeah. and it's hard to imagine how they will change, but what we've come to recognize is that they will. And you have to be comfortable letting some things go, recognizing that it's a new chapter and out of those new beginnings come new responsibility, new accountabilities. And sometimes you need new people to be able to own those those roles. Yeah. And so people was what people were um, and continue to be one of our biggest opportunities, like how we mentor and empower, how we talk about our values. And I think that all of the struggle and all of the opportunity centers around how you communicate and manage that conversation. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess anytime you're growing a company, you sort of imagine people being with you forever, or you just or or I, I can imagine this, you sort of imagine a scenario where everything's gonna work out and everyone's gonna work out. And then of course things change and when you grow the dynamics change and the skills change and it's just not a good fit anymore in certain cases, right? And you gotta work through those things. It's so hard because you want it to work out forever. Of course. Right? Yeah. Like you you meet these incredible individuals that like are passionately adding value to your business. Like every single day they show up and and they fight for these inches for you. And and we had so many great relationships within our business. And and it's not an employee employee mentality uh, within our organization. It really is a relationship. And and it's it's all encompassing because of the work that we do. And you don't want that to change. And so I think as as leaders, you fight really hard to maintain it. And sometimes I think that we fought far longer than we should have. And the hardest part about that is that it really sets those relationships up long term to potentially not not be as much a part of your life in the future as they would be if you had just let them run their course, mm-hmm. right? Like when you're really forcing that and you know it, it just creates this challenge, this struggle. Yeah. Um, and I think that that maybe is one of those bright, those big learnings um, and and bright opportunities for us is knowing in the future not to push so hard and try to maintain status quo, right? Past its due. Yeah, I've definitely found sometimes when you you. You think you're doing the right thing by somebody by by maintaining the status quo, but actually you're 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 making it harder on them, harder on you. It's just creating a, a tough situation rather than just accepting that change needs to happen for whatever reason, right? And just going for it. Like when I hear you say that too, it it, it kind of speaks a little bit to my personality of of there's people pleasing in there for sure, mm-hmm. but then there's also this piece around around just like willing to endure struggle, like just comfort in the pain. And I think that out of that, um, people have different levels of that comfort. And, and maybe mine is, is more extreme than most. And out of that can come, unfortunately, like massive disruption of those relationships. And so if, it, if you don't allow it to run its course and you don't move on and you fight it, you know, months later or years later, these relationships that you care so deep about um, and, and with your team members, they they're going to move on to a new role and and the personal relationship that could have still continued to exist yeah. doesn't even have an opportunity. And I think when you have to say goodbye to those relationships, that's when it's the hardest. And we've had moments where that's happened. And you know, there'll be some of my deepest regrets about the merge and and also about the evolution of our roles within the organization because they're people that you care for, that you wish that you could reach out to. But this environment or set of circumstances happened and and you were all learning, but unfortunately there's some failures. Yeah, it just creates yeah, it just happens. Yeah. Yeah, I, when I as I was exiting out of Brightweb, that was I think the thing that I thought about the most was the commitments I had made to staff and to my team and to people. Like, what did what responsibility did I have to them to uphold that as I transitioned? Like, and and in merging, it's the same idea. You're changing the ownership structure, so you're changing some of the values are going to shift, and maybe what you're doing is going to shift slightly. 
And so how do you if you if you've made promises, how do you do that? Like what are the ethics around that and what is the uh, the values around that because things have to change and constantly evolve, right? So that's that's fine. But it, it was the thing I think I thought about the most through those months, actually. How did so when you think about that for yourself? How did you how did you manage that well? And how did you think about how you were going to to show up differently, knowing that that was uh, a potential threat? Yeah, I, I think the the thing that felt right for me and. Um, I don't think this is common or best practice or like recommended best practice, but I just felt the need to communicate what was happening really early uh, in terms of the potential for uh, an acquisition. Um, I just felt the need to put it on the table with my team really early to say, I'm looking to move on. That doesn't mean this isn't a great company. And uh, frankly, my learning is that I should have said that a year earlier than I did, and I still think I did it a lot earlier than most leaders or owners, business owners would. To say, my heart's not here, and we this company needs a leader that that's heart is right here because this is a great business, you know, and a great team, and we do great things. So I think there was that component, but I think the thing that I did get right was as soon as there was a. Um, you know, like a strong, a strong idea that this was a, a real potential. I sat down with the team and I told them that. And it's really interesting because you have to balance too much information with with teams because a lot of people don't want the change. Like we're pretty comfortable with change usually. I think that's usually why we're the the role that 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 builds these things. And it's not the most important role, but it's it's a certain type of role, and we're comfortable with that risk and that change. But I also acknowledge that. Like too much information is also overwhelming for your team, right? Like, like telling them too much about what's potentially going to happen is like just shakes up the ground too much for them, right? But so I had to balance that. But I just felt the need, like I want to be transparent with you. I don't want to show up one day and say, "Hey, we have a signed deal. Uh, companies, companies changing hands in two months." Right. Like I, I felt like that, at least with the nature of my company uh, at the time. And I don't know if this is true for all companies, but I just felt that was my responsibility. I, I had built. I had asked for that level of trust from them uh, that I owed that to them. So I think that's the main thing. It was like just sharing as frequently as possible. And then I started kind of doing weekly updates, even if there was no update. So it's like, well, we don't we still don't have the deal finalized, but everything is moving positively. So I do feel like we're still moving in that direction. I might be wrong, but I think that's what's happening still, you know? That's interesting. I I feel like I just want to spend like a second on that one. Yeah. So one of the one of the challenges that as a leader um, we feel like we're faced with is that you want to share so openly, right? You just want to be, um, you know, all cards on the table, open book with your team members. There's that's generally the natural instinct that I think that certainly members in our organization want to lean towards. And the challenge is is that what you're openly sharing is that there's no way for us to understand what this unknown looks like right now. Yeah, you're sharing how little you know about yeah. the future, right? That's right. Yeah, and so for and there, and there's a recognition that as a leader, for many, that's not a comfortable state of being. Like it's really, really hard, I think, for for people to be comfortable with that, especially when it's relates back to how you put food on the table for your family, how you're paying bills, how you're paying for your child's education. Like that's a hard spot to put people in, and I think trying to weigh that 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 risk reward and understand, you know, of course we want to be open and I want to be transparent with you. 
But I also know that this is going to cause an incredible amount of potential harm for you, depending on how you interpret that change. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I want to save you from that as well. And then the other struggle is the other, the other piece of it is, is that just, and you probably feel similar. You know, we have a fundamental belief that that loyal, driven, passionate individuals that are all in on initiatives um, create the best work. And so, the moment as a leader, you say, "Listen, I'm thinking about exiting," all of a sudden, it really opens up. Um, a conversation around around that, and does that rub off, or does that begin to be modeled out throughout the business? Because right. you know that a visionary is is wanting to take a step back. Yeah, it's it's so true. I think I think that's one of the bigger learnings that I had. I used to overshare. I used to think that my team loved to jam on new ideas as much as I did. Right, <laughs> like when we were a smaller oh. team, and it was kind of like we're all at the same table kind of vibe, and. I actually had a, uh, one, a, a woman who worked for me who I thought got really energized by our conversations because she'd participate in them and, and she was an operations person for me. Um, uh, she came to me finally and she was like, you know, it actually really stresses me out when you share this much because I immediately try to solve the problem and, and operationalize your concept. But I, and, and, you, and you tell me that it's one in five of these concepts that's going to be a real thing, but I can't help. My brain just goes to putting that into place and organizing it, and it's really hard for me. And, and that was a kind of an aha moment for me, hearing that. I, 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 would, I suspect that if you had conversations with any of the leaders around me, they would probably share a very similar thing. Like I, I always expected that you'd want to talk about new ideas and, and, and just start jamming on these really incredible opportunities. And, and then you begin to realize that, well, there was five really good opportunities a month ago, and we haven't even checked those boxes yet. So let's maybe just focus on what we have and currently on our plate, as opposed to we take on more. I'm kind of curious, though, that if somebody comes to you with that same opportunity and and that locus of control is taken from yourself and now owned by them, and they start sharing these really incredible opportunities, are you able to for, like to forget that this isn't your opportunity, and you're able to get excited with them and just start going back and forth, or does it have to be led by you? Like. Like if it's like if you come to me with an idea that you're working on, you mean, or yeah. like it's totally unrelated to my world in that respect, or yeah, like if if I was, let's just say that I I was a, a VP that was working uh, with you, mm-hmm. uh, so one of your team members, and and rather than you controlling the dialogue and controlling the the envisioning of a new idea, oh, if I they're see. controlling that dialogue, they're controlling the pace, and they're sharing with you, does does that same enjoyment still happen the same way? I guess what I'm asking is, is a function of that, knowing that you're in control and that your mindset is much further down the path right? with that thought. Because be, probably before you've ever shared it with your team member, you've probably been thinking about it on your early morning runs. You probably have been in yeah, dinner right. table talk with, with, your, with your family. Like, you know, you've been uh, maybe somehow, some way, giving this some thought for, for weeks, if not months. That's right. It's been incubating. And then you start sharing it at at least 30 or 40% incubated. Yes. Yeah, interesting. So it's interesting because also with as I'm starting Nature of Work as we're spinning up a new company like first time going to zero and like zero to one in a decade for me, um, uh, I'm specifically trying to install a operating model that gives that level of autonomy to every person in their roles. Like basically uh, similar to similar to like a holacracy model. I don't know if you're familiar with holacracy. Have you heard of it? I'm trying to. Is is that a? You would have heard of it from Zappos. Did it, okay. and there was a lot of 
talk at that time about it. Okay, um, so I feel like I've come across a term, but just if you could, spend it, a it's just seconds. it's just uh, essentially what it says is that there are uh, first of all, it separates this idea of separating the soul from the role, meaning that there is a key role for marketing, and you are inhabiting that role, but but that is not the only thing you that you bring to this organization. So there's basically they look at um, there's individual roles and then those go into circles that are like domains basically that could have five or ten roles in it. You might have five of those roles. These are and these these define responsibilities, um, basically accountabilities, responsibilities, and autonomies for specific things within your organization. And if somebody has that, that is theirs to own and to and to do. Um, and it creates like if you if you take that really the the basic idea is that in a mo- in a modern context with the way the the speed at which things are changing with technology and all this stuff that a top down approach to decision making doesn't really work anymore we have to move more agile than that and also like every anyone who's experienced management like basically the the higher up in management the more time you spend in meetings because the more time all you're doing doing is like Answering questions and making decisions, as opposed to pushing those decisions back down and saying, "Look, you're on the front lines. Um, one of the responsibilities that we have is you can make decisions, but you also have the responsibility to ask for advice when you feel like you you haven't done something before that it's out of your your um, experience base." But, but the basic idea is that if you ask for advice, I could give you advice and obviously if I've built trust with you and some moral authority with you, you're going to take my advice pretty seriously, but you might also think my advice is wrong. Right. And decide to push forward. And as long as you've done that and you haven't made like yeah, anyway, it's just an interesting way to think about this, but it it actually starts to in, install exactly your last question there just about um basically about Oh well, what happens when it's flipped around on you and somebody's sort of has the has is steering the steering the decision making, and is and is what's the comfort level there? Because I have to, I know I have to actively shift a bit further in that direction to basically allow like hand over that control and give up that control. Right. So it's 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 an interesting dynamic to to consider. How about you? Like, what do you what do you think? I think, you know, there's. There's the 95-5 rule mm-hmm. that I try to remind myself of on a on a daily basis, and that that rule speaks very similar to the line of thought that you just shared, which is that 95% of the efforts and of the the productivity and the successes of an organization will not come from upper leadership. It will come from the values and the culture that you create, and and that's really a, another way of thinking about culture and values. To me, is is a decision making framework about how to show up. Beautiful, like, yeah. like every day. Uh, and if you can do a great job communicating values and culture, then then you're empowering people to make the right decisions on a day to day basis on the small details that the culture or the values that are written on the wall are not going to speak to. So you right. might have a value of innovation that speaks to, you know, how we want to continue to think differently and how we really want to. For us, like at MLA, for example, it, it's all about how we innovate and create meaningful real estate experiences. That's our purpose, and there's a degree of innovation that's tied into that. Um, but that's really challenging because what does that mean when you're editing copy on a project mass email? Well, hopefully people can understand that purpose, they can understand that North Star, and they can make some decisions that resonate really well for them. And if you've done a good job of setting culture, your sound hiring practices, mm-hmm. they can show up. 
So the 95-5 rule is something that, that resonates with me, but the hardest part with it is, is making sure that you're willing to take that medicine as well because yeah. you have to be able then to, to um, relieve yourself of the responsibility that you feel or that mass media um, places on leadership roles. Yeah. Because ultimately then the decision for you is really just to support, it's not to lead, it's just to help. Where does the 95-5, is that, where does that come from? Is that- so, there's some mention of it in Jim Collins. Okay. Right. There's a degree of that, and that that's paired with the good Pareto. to great or a different good to great. Yeah, yeah, good to great, and that's paired with um, the Pareto principle, which is, of course, I think that we're probably all familiar with. Um, all about how you spend your time and being careful what those things are, because probably a lot of 20, people know that as the eighty twenty. Yes, yeah. the eighty twenty, and so combining the eighty twenty with the ninety five five might be, you know, an effective way to manage, but it's still a really hard thing to do because you have to remind yourself every day. That your voice is irrelevant somewhat. Your real job is just setting the parameters for them to operate within. Yeah, I love. I really like the 95.5 Feels true, and and you're right. It's like you have to admit that you have a bias to your own ideas, and you think you know a bias to thinking you're the smartest at something, but typically, like most of the time, you're not. And that to trust experts, you, that's why you've hired them. Um, but it's 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 definitely challenging. We use. Um, Entrepreneur operating system, EOS, EOS, yeah. to drive many of our formal rhythms. And what I've found is that one of the the tenets of EOS is a really sound accountability chart. And and that's different from roles and responsibilities. And as we really dug into that as an organization, what I what what I think that I found, and I would I suspect that our partners found as well, was that that was able to clear up some of some of that. And and as a as a leader or or as a partner, you're able to recognize that, and maybe this is also one of the benefits of having partners that are active members of your organization, is that tr- that authoritative position isn't something that I necessarily believe I've ever had in any of my roles. I, I've always, at least from my perspective, believe that that we have these great leaders that are great partners, and and as a result of that, I don't have the burden of having to figure out hiring or firing decisions. Um, you're there to collect as a group and to make sure that you know we're pursuing vision in the right ways, and we have great dialogue around that. Alignment is always one of the the, the, the challenges or the opportunities of partnership. Um, but it's interesting because I think about other organizations where there's a sole proprietor without active partners within the organization, and that that uh, authority or those power dynamics are just completely different. Yeah. And so when I hear you speak about about holacracy. It feels like actually our organizations are really similarly aligned from mm. from that perspective. That's super interesting, and you're right. I, I've always because um, my last company, Brightweb, was a, a sole. Like, well, I, I was the sole owner, um, and you you can never ask someone to be as committed as you are uh, in that. And uh, it's there's always a dynamic whether you. Think you're creating it or not, and whether you're actively trying to dismantle it or not, it's just always there. If you're the owner of the business in the room and the sole owner of the business, that's just part of the dynamic that that has to exist. I think you know, and, and I've always it's actually really interesting. In the last few years, I was pulling myself back in my role. I was empowering my management team. I was trying to say like, you are in charge of this. I'm here to support you. And still, like, there's a dynamic. If I'm in the room, decisions don't get made unless there's somebody's looking over at me and saying, "What are we going to do?" or "What do you think?" And so it's it's just a funny it's a funny thing. Like, people, I guess people gravitate towards that. Like, I think a lot of research shows that 
people gravitate towards leadership, like more authoritarian leadership than they would even think that they do. Um, so often people are looking for that, but I, I was, I'm constantly trying to dismantle that. And the people that work closely and work well with me know that about me. They know that I'm not going to be all over them or micromanaging them or doing any of that. I think that's one of the plights of leadership today is that when I think about running an organization like 30 years ago or 50 years ago, author, authoritative uh uh, relationships within the organization lines were clear, right? Yeah, and yeah. you're right; they were very clear, and and people were very direct. and And I think that you know we've evolved from that perspective now to to really caring about about empowerment, and we care, I think, deeply across most industries around around like mentorship, leadership, and as business like as sound business practices really reshape how we interact with with team members. My belief is that it's harder to manage today than it's ever has because you know, you know that great leadership is all about clear vision, clear direction, let's go. And somebody has to, to set that tone and that pulse for the organization. But then you have to find ways of empowering. And, and sometimes I wonder whether how much people talk about empowerment and how important it is. But at times I really wonder, similarly to running, like people say they want to run and they want to be runners. And it's a really easy thing to do. All you have to do is throw your shoes on and walk outside to the curb five minutes, or sorry, 50 steps from your house and run. And yet so few do. And I wonder whether that conversation uh, is kind of in vogue right now around empowerment, but how much people, how much do people really want it and really want to take that responsibility on and the accountability that goes with it? I totally agree. And so as a leader, you want to encourage it and you want it to be there, but you also recognize that for some, that's that's everything that they need, and for for many, I suspect maybe not necessarily true. Yeah, I think it extends outside of work too. The mentality of our society these days is that people want total autonomy and total freedom of choice, and I think you see a lot of destabilization psychologically in in things moving forward. In like people, like there's, I mean, there's a lot of lack of trust in any sort of structures, like governmental, organizational, you know, um, those kind of structures or um, for, for a lot of good reasons, but also with that, with that comes a, a, a real sense of destabilization where people don't know how to move forward. They kind of get paralyzed in choice. Um, and you see that inside of organizations all the time. People say they want to um, be a leader, but as soon as that comes with a taunt, like as soon as that comes with uh Accountability, it's a totally it's it's really scary. Like it's a certain personality that I guess like doesn't mind being wrong a lot. I, I, that's the easiest way I can describe being right. a leader. Is like you just got to be comfortable with being wrong a lot. <laughs> right. And uh, I I share this privately. I don't share this um, publicly often. But to be a great leader, at times you almost have to be a bit of a sociopath as well. Yeah. Like you have to be able to separate these really tough decisions. From from everything that you feel about the pulse in the organization and 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 the relationships that exist within it and outside of it, and that can be a really hard thing to do because you have to act objectively, even though you're bound by these subjective opinions of 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 team members of initiatives priorities. Like that's a, that's a challenging thing to weigh at times. You know, I, uh, Jordan Peterson talks a ton about tribalism and he talks a ton about uh, hierarchy, and uh, out of the hierarchy come. Um, power classifications, if you will. Yeah, and I I think it's interesting because I find that there's times where I I feel like I want greater autonomy in my personal life and I want the ability to choose. But what I do recognize is that 
I'm very appreciative of the work that Google does from algorithm-based studies of my habits and my routines to make really strong recommendations that allow me to be a little bit more efficient in how I shop for new services or shop for new products. And so if I had to choose between one or the other, I would probably choose to be to have my hand held as opposed to have freedom of choice. Yeah. And yet, yet I still believe that empowerment is important. I think within companies, the the great leaders are able to find ways of nurturing people through that fear of making the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. And hopefully over time, like just one percent gains every single day, hopefully uh, you can just empower those team members to be comfortable being wrong, as long as they're not wrong too often, but but they can be wrong. And they take those they they take that on with the same passion that they want to speak about empowerment and how they they need that autonomy. So I think that's something that we we try to spend a lot of time on, but I still feel like we're so early in, in understanding like how that really manifests itself in the company. And I'm trying to figure out how that how I feel about that just in in the real world, like outside of the business with my wife or with my children. Yeah. You just said a whole bunch of things I want to speak on. The sociopathic piece is really interesting because I I've come to recognize that myself. That if you look at most people who start businesses or who are in in top leadership positions, they they're somewhere on the scale. Of having having those uh, the ability to think that way because otherwise it's actually Im- it's really impossible to run a business if you can't separate the emotional side from it right and sometimes you know like and and I think there's lots of ways to make to do do well by people that you may have to make a hard decision around uh, you see there's there's ways to mitigate that however you often need to make so, I think part of being like part of being in leadership is often making the right decision for both parties, even though one party doesn't yet see that or agree with that. Right. Right. And it, or just saying like we we have to move this direction, and that means this thing changes over here. And I know I say we are going to do that, but we're not going to anymore. Um, but you you just you it's 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 dysfunctional otherwise, right? So there's some level of that. There's uh, you know the the definition of a sociopath kind of. Has uh, a connotation of like these really impulsive reactions that mm-hmm. um, that that individual is able to relieve themselves of the emotional commitments that come with it, and I think I think not. I don't mean sociopath in the terms of being impulsive, but I certainly mean it in the ability to free yourself of the guilt that's associated with these tough decisions because of deep personal relationships within the company or within these. Um, External decision relationships, like yeah. that's the part for me that that can be so hard to weigh. And from the outside looking in, it can appear that you don't care. Yeah. And and you know, it, as any leader knows, I, I I don't know any leaders, luckily through YPO or EO, that don't absolutely think and give deep consideration to all the horrible outcomes of tough decisions. Yeah. But then you have to you have to. Find a way to focus on the future and to think about those that you're supporting as opposed to those that are being negatively impacted. So, I don't know how you balance that, but I know that as a leader, it's really hard. And I think it, it feels like it's getting harder today than it was, you know, decades ago. Well, when there was, yeah, you're totally right. And when there was really clear lines of authority and and all that stuff, it was just taken for granted that, yep, decisions happen without. I don't. I hear about the decision when it's been made, and I accept what's happened, and I. Maybe I just got fired. Maybe I just got a promotion. Maybe the whole department just changed. I'll find out when the decision. Like that's just kind of how it goes. And now I think people believe, or maybe some really do, want transparency. And the 
But I think a lot of folks, the same way you see this um, with social issues now, but inside of companies, people think they want all the information, but oftentimes they don't. Like I often see my role is like figuring out how to filter the chaos that's the you know when the business is like the the hull of the boat and it's cutting through chaos. Like how much of that do I filter, and how much of that do I share with the team as it's happening? Um, in order for them to be able to function and go about their lives, right, and like do their job and not be sitting up at night wondering about their role and what's you know, so so people think they want all this transparency, but I'm not sure that they actually do. Like I don't know that we do. Like around social issues, the world is in many ways, I would say most ways, getting better. There's lots of interesting political issues, especially down in the states and stuff like that. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on, but what's really happening is that we just have. Way more access to information about what's going on, right? So shit looks like it's like just everything's on fire. But honestly, if we compare this to three hundred years ago, or five hundred years ago, or two thousand years ago, or different civilizations, like this is incredible. <laughs> there's there's a lot in there right now, and I'm I'm thinking, you know, a little bit like where I would how I'd probably respond to that is in terms of being that that filter, yeah. Which is a really hard role to play because there. What I think is so easy um, for us to say, but then it's really hard to put yourself in the perspective that it needs to be when you're sharing. Is that you? Even if you run a small team, even if there's just twenty people on your team, mm-hmm. um, when you think about disc profiles, they will fall across a range, and so how they interpret that information. Yeah, it's always different. Is different. It's so unique. Yeah, and everyone will have a different sense of change and how they react to it, as well as the way that you have to storytell that change. And I think that that's the hardest part is is that in order for you to to be wide reaching, you have to be able to share. But then you also recognize that you can't share the way that every individual needs it to be shared. Because if we were to focus on that every single time, the moment that you scale beyond beyond twenty, I think it becomes a a very time consuming process. And so yes. the great leaders find a way to, I think the best leaders find a way to do that really, really well and try to make it meaningful because the first thing that, that I have to believe that a team member, and I even do it for myself when I hear news, it's like, what does that mean to me? Yeah. Right. And, and if you can't, as a leader, be great at anticipating what that means to them and being able to share that story, I think that there's a lot of confusion around change then. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. You, you have to think about the nuances. I've come to think about certain certain team members as being my indicators of certain feelings. So some people who are a bit more outlier are actually quite useful to know who they are and have go and talk to them and see like, you know, see how they react to some news because that will help like they may be more extreme in their reaction, but it gives you an indication of others and it's 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 really interesting trying to wade through those kind of those moments. As as you say that, I'm I'm smiling a little bit because, you know, feel really fortunate. I have I have uh, three partners in our core business, and then we have uh, a Fraser Valley office where we have another partner, and all of them interpret differently. They're all such different personalities, and you're absolutely right. When you're trying to stress test a belief, you can pick up the phone and have you know four conversations, and you'll know you have four reactions, and if all four of them. Uh, respond somewhat similarly, you know that you're probably onto something. Yeah. And if there's some pushback over here, you can think about their disc and you can think about why is that pushback and you begin to try to work through the problem. Um, I hadn't thought about it like that before, but that's that's a really useful insight. Yeah, what you just said, it's like and then when you're getting that feedback and assess the profile and say, am I communicating this, am I communicating this wrong? 
or is there something off about this? Like, is there some nuance that I can get right? Because ultimately, it's a ton about storytelling, as you just said too. Is is about is communicating the right information in the right way. I, I learned through through my situation, like through exiting uh, Brightweb, and I'm sure you learned this through your merger too. Is every communication the first question is, what does this mean for me? And making sure you're answering that first. Like when you learn and you learn about the brain, you learn like the amygdala basically is the gatekeeper, and the and anything that's going to cause fear or like you know fight or fight or flight. If you if you can't get past that. Right away, then all the other information is not getting in. Like right. it's just bouncing right off the brain. Right, and the brain's like, I can't hear any of these details. All I heard is something's, you know, this is changing, and every like everything else is out the window. It's almost like it's a very irrational brain at that moment. So you actually have to get through that. Same thing with, I mean, it's the same same principle happens when you're going to sell. So one of one of the interesting thoughts too is is that you're genetically coded. Your brain is is genetically Program to find efficiency, right? Right, like that. That's its purpose: is to try to expend as little energy as possible um, towards the energies that you can uh, mechanize or um, or make routine, so that it can have reserves left over uh, for itself to be able to fight or flight in the right moments, right? And so, when you think about that, and and you think about that conversation around change, that's that plays. I, I can't help but think that that plays a really important part about people's reaction to it and why it can be so tough. And so you're fighting your genetics every single time. Um, every single time that you're introducing change and you're trying to be comfortable with it, you're you're going up against thousands and thousands of years of evolution. And I think that that therein lies the problem around the conversation of autonomy and empowerment. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that necessarily means for organizations how that shifts, but but I think that. We would be hard pressed to. I think that you should not forget that you know your body wants life to look tomorrow somewhat similar to the way that it looked today. Yeah. And you build these habits, and whether you're comfortable with them or whether you even recognize that they're habits, and we call them habits or routines. Um, I kind of think of them more like systems that you're that you're running, but but we build these habits, and, and over a lifetime, they they, they add up to something, and. You know, if you can be really comfortable with the notion of, of that system operating, then maybe change gets a little bit easier, right? To recognize when it's happening and, and your emotional response to it, right? But when something comes in, a decision or information or an action comes at you that is way outside of your operating system, that is jarring, right? And yeah. and and then you that's those that's the moments. I mean, that's when we talk about resilience. That's I think what we're really talking about is what happens in that moment. How do you react? Right. Yeah. How do you how do you manage in that moment? Yeah, and I think I think that's that's the part that's probably maybe top of mind for for me right now on my journey is just trying to figure out how do you respond to that. And and for me, uh, I think there's there's so many different ways of managing this, and there's lots of great wellness techniques on on how to do a better job in that process. And I think the first step is not too dissimilar to to maybe having a problem of addiction. Like the first step is to recognize that you might have a problem there, and and spending a lot of time just trying to identify mm-hmm. when you're having an emotional reaction to something that you're not in control of. And just like I found, like I'm just on step one of that process, and it is a really hard step to get great at because it's so easy to fall in the habit of a reaction. That's built off of all these learnings that you've had throughout your lifetime, and if you can 
you know, critically think about why you're emotionally responding that way, you, you have a bit of a chance, a bit of a better chance of controlling what those outcomes will be mm-hmm. from a response standpoint and hopefully impacting the outcome to be more positive for your life. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, right. The first step is being aware that there is a response and that you do have the, you, there is a choice in that response and finding the space between, you know, the stimulus and the response to actually make that choice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think for for Vipassana meditation, the whole practice of Vipassana meditation um, is just spending time scanning your body and and noticing sensations. And what's really fascinating is when you do like an extended, um, like people do the ten day silence retreats, which I've done one, which is the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, but in it, like day five, day six. As you're just scanning your body, all these emotions start to come up, all this memory starts to come up, but you start to learn a practice of the whole idea. The basic idea is that you start to recognize a sensation in your body as an emotion and then to just observe that sensation and not react to it. So, so it gives you the choice. You say, I, I'm, you know, you've just said something that's kind of offended me, and like my chest just got hot because like I'm just I'm starting to heat up. Because I'm angry, and that's 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 okay. But I don't need to, I don't need to go further than that. I can just observe that sensation and let it pass, and hopefully make a better decision for both of us in that moment, right? How long has it taken you to to move from maybe that being outside of your consciousness to now being a big part of your consciousness? Uh, it's a never-ending journey, so it's. There's no end. Like I haven't reached an end point. Uh, I, I, I never want to indicate that. On good days, uh, I guess. I guess I I did my first long retreat, like ten day retreat, a year ago. Basically, a year ago, last week. Um, and I had been meditating up till then because I I think five minutes of meditation a day, you start to notice a difference. Like it doesn't take a lot um, to start. Getting grounded, and I think if you even boil it down to a simpler thing, it's getting back just connected to your body, so that you're you're just aware of how you feel in a room, and you're using that energy as opposed to like when you get disconnected from your body and you're just purely in your mind. Your mind is really quick to make assumptions. To your point, it's like it goes straight to the automatic programming that you have, and that sometimes is good, and sometimes it's it's not good. And 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 in some cases, there's areas. Where you you should identify that like in these situations I always flare up, right? And I need to be able to I need to ground down. I need to get extra grounded for those moments. So I think I've been thinking about that for a few years. I feel like in the last year is when I've started to like I've I, there was a leap. The ten the ten day meditation was a big leap, and it was actually a psychedelic journey before that that led me to finally going to a ten day because I've known about the ten day retreats for years for well over a decade. My wife's been trying to get me to go to one for ten years, like since I met her, because she had done one before she met me. And she's like, "We should go," and I was like, "Yeah, it's going to be great. I would love to." But this summer's a little busy, babe. And <laughs> there's a lot of that, you know, a lot of like talking yourself out of it. And but doing that longer stint changed my relationship with meditation. I now try to stay at a thirty day, thirty minutes every morning uh, ritual, which isn't. You know, nothing's hundred percent, but I try to stay that, and I definitely notice the difference if I've done, if I'm a few weeks in and I haven't broken a day, the difference in my resilience is wild. Why do you think 
it is that you you can know something is just so good for you, like meditation, yeah. and yet and you know it and you recognize it when you talk about it in, in in a moment or in a situation with a friend or 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 loved one, you know that you should be doing it. Mm-hmm. And yet the brain still creates all these reasons as to why not to do it. What, what, yeah, I don't why know. Why is that? I mean, it's you you said you were kind of talking about evolutionary wiring, right? And if you think about evolutionary wiring around food, it's get as much cal- as many calories, as much fat, as much sugar, like sugar we're naturally gravitated towards sugar and it's and we love the taste of it because that would keep you alive if you're not going to eat for 2 days. The best thing to find is like a bunch of sugar and fat, right? Like berries or like a fatty animal or something like that, right? So that's our evolutionary wiring. Seek out fat, seek out seek out sugar and conserve energy, right? Like be as dormant as possible so that when you need to, you have the energy to do something. Like it's it's not a evolutionarily intelligent thing to to work out for three hours a day if you don't need to, because then you're less you're you're less likely to fight off a tiger or whatever you know I don't know anything like that or or you're you you don't have the store of energy that you need. But in today's world, like none of that is existing anymore. And I think the other component is that our like the way I've been reading a lot about um, basically how often. How much of our day we spend in a vigilant mental mode, or in like a information consumption mode, and that rewires the brain too, right? So our brain gets used to wanting things instantly. So it's easier to just react and move on than to think about something that takes less calories to just react and move on. Right. So I think like anything, like building habits. Like meditation, I am now at a place where I crave meditation. If I if I missed it for a day or two, I'm like, oh man, I gotta get back there. Like I want it. So it's no and the same thing with exercise, right? If you're way if you haven't exercised in a few months, and I'm just experiencing that right now, I hadn't exercised in a few months. Getting that first week in is hard. Like I did a day, I'm like, I'm gonna go every day this week. And then I didn't do it for three days or four days. Then the next week it was like, okay, and then I did a couple, and now it's like now I feel like I want to exercise four days a week, five days a week. Right, uh, the breaking of the chain, right? Like the second yeah. that it is broken, it is so hard to hinge that back up. Yeah, I, I feel the same. Even even for me, who's who's quite religious on on training right now, just given some of the things I'm working towards, and and if I have one day off, I can feel it's. I still will work out the next day, but it is a little bit harder for me, and I have to do a really good job of priming myself, setting up. All like removing any of the barriers, yeah. right? And setting some very clear times. I'm going to start that 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 run the next morning, and making sure that it. In order to do that, I need to fuel myself, and I need to make sure that all that fuel is set out before. Because if I don't, if I don't do that, like I I I find that it can easily slip. And if one becomes two, yeah, then two can easily become thirty, right? right? And so just knowing, like having that capacity to to recognize that, yeah. I, a, I, I I think daily habits is is one thing that I would love to chat a bit about if you're yeah if you're, if you're down like. It's interesting because, like, what I think about habits. You're, you're talking about daily meditation, and like, once that habit is set, it is hard to break, right? Like, your mm-hmm. your body like just like it responds around it, and it and it sets you up to to like you were saying to crave it. But I think that it's that it's that time between when you identify that you're that you maybe have a habit that's like out of line with with your goals or out of line with your identity. How do you 
How do you take the steps to identify that and to actually bring it in? And I think that that's one of the hardest things to do. And the way that I kind of think about this a little bit is, is like you wake up in the morning, for example, and and you have a choice. You either reach for a glass of water to drink to rehydrate, which is I think one of the best decisions that you can make the second you open your eyes, or you can reach for your phone and you can check messages. Yeah. Right. And one has a big dopamine hit. Yeah. Potentially. Uh, and the other, it's 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 less. Uh, you, you feel it a little bit less. Like you don't. You know that it's a smart thing to drink water, but it doesn't necessarily feel like it's a smart thing at the time. Right. But yet you know that if you add up that one percent over fifty years, you know that that has to add up to something in the quality of your life. Yeah. Right. And then and then you come downstairs and you have a choice. Uh, so you've either checked your phone or you've you've drank some water. And I have to believe that whatever one you chose will have an outcome on the next decision that you make as well. And mm-hmm. so if you've drank water, maybe the next decision could be stretching. Right. right. If you've gone with you know the dopamine hit, then you might want another dopamine hit. And so maybe that next one is drinking coffee, right? And and again, and, and so now these habits begin to stack. And and I would people would call them habits and or rituals. I call them systems. It's all the same thing. And and you make three or four decisions like that, and within the first forty five minutes of your day, you're running a routine. People don't necessarily recognize 100%. it, but but you wake up every morning, you check your you check your Instagram, then you walk downstairs, then you make coffee, then you check maybe YouTube or you read the news, <laughs> um, and all of a sudden, the first hour of your day, you ro- you rose at six, it's now seven, and the day begins. And just think about the difference of doing that over fifty years versus waking up, having a glass of water. Walking downstairs, stretching while the coffee is potentially percolating, um, and rather than checking your email, maybe you're just thinking about the priorities of the day in in a gentle meditation. Yeah, right. And you add that up, and that's huge. It's massive, right? I mean, you literally just described the first module of Nature of Work, so I appreciate it. Thank I, you. I needed to relate it back to now somehow, right? Like, <laughs> no, but but that's uh, like first of all, that's why we start with the morning ritual because it's like the first domino to fall. Is that first decision you make first thing in the morning, and the first five minutes, then the first 10, 15 minutes? Like definitely, we heard that basically, it's in the research, but then when we were testing out the program, we just heard that over and over. It's like, oh, once I could get off my phone for the first 10 minutes of the day, I felt like I could make other decisions. You get a win under your belt, too, right? right? Um, and you're not setting your brain off on this uh, tangent that, like, when your brain, your brain is a vigilant you know, machine, and basically, if you tell it, Hey, there's lots of information coming at you. You need to just stay alert and stay distracted. And by looking at your phone first thing, you know, that's what your brain's going to want to do. And, and your brain naturally gets into that mode for the day. Like I think I feel like you can set the the tone and the pace for your day with your morning actions. Uh, I think when like I was lucky enough to have just met you as we were as you were building out the nature of work, right? And I think that the first time that we had actually had a face to face, you were fresh off of a ten day silence retreat. Yeah, so about a year ago. That's yeah. right. Yeah, um, we sat down at Homer Street, and I was blown away by your story. Just hearing about the power. There was two things that I took away. One was was just how when you when, once you found that meditative state, how easy it was, and how much you you like you had a thirst for it. And then the other piece that I that I will never forget, which is just the relationship between. Mind and body was that you were trying to assume a pose, and you'd been working on that pose, I think, for almost a year or two, and you were never able quite to achieve it. And and then I think within the first four or five days of being completely distant, completely introvert, like introspective, right, you were able to achieve that that stretch. And I can't remember exactly what it was. I believe it was something around a lock, uh, uh, behind body lock. Yeah. 
and and just like recognizing the deep relationship that's between your mind and your body when we're all bound with stress. Yeah, that was such an interesting learning for me. And I talked to multiple people because then the last day you break silence and people sort of share experiences and stuff. But how many people had had chronic pain for years, had a crook in their like a crack in their neck for years, had couldn't do a you know couldn't stretch, couldn't do all these things, and by sitting. And 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 just exploring the body sensations for ten days diligently, how much more relaxed the whole thing. It's just it's unreal, right? Like it it actually showed me that yoga. I mean, yoga as we know it, we think we like there's there's some component of getting stronger and getting more fit, but yoga used to be like you would do poses as an expression of of your of your in um, inward yoga yogic practice. So you could do these poses because of your meditation practice, because of your inner work. So they were an expression of your inner work, not that you would do those to get to those poses. Like it wasn't, you know, it's a combination. It's a give and take, but it's kind of it's interesting to think about it that way. When I so I left that conversation and I was so excited. And then you had agreed to take me on for the Alpha test of nature of work. Yeah. And at the time, I had no idea what I was getting into. I just I just thought that was an interesting conversation I had with you and. And uh, I thought that I knew a little bit about wellness, and I thought I knew a little bit about how I was spending my energy. But then when I jumped into to now, what I loved about it more than anything, do you call it now, by the way? Yeah. Um, Give and take. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when I jumped into that, I was I was blown away because I started thinking about all the things like because I think one of your early modules, and I'm I'm excited to do the next version of it, like because. Even the alpha was so powerful for me, so I can only imagine what what the final product looks like now. But uh, it forced you to write down the habits that you're practicing, and so you just log your day. and And it's so odd how if you just do that once, and you just literally, I opened my eyes. What was the next thing that I did? And then what did I do after that? And what did I do after that? And you look at these things yeah. on a piece of paper, and you're like, Oh my god, why am I doing that? Mm-hmm. That doesn't even make sense. I didn't even know I was doing that. Like I'm running these scripts, and I'm doing it every single day, and it is so bad for me. It's back to what you said earlier. It's like just becoming aware of something is really the first step. Because we are, we are on autopilot most of the day for a lot of the things we think, say, do, right? right? Like we are just on autopilot because otherwise life would be unmanageable. Like we need habits. So it really boils down to habits. And right. that's why it's a daily practice thing. And like, like you and I have read, I, I was actually really happy that you got a lot out of the program because I felt like, well, this is someone who's spent a ton of time thinking about these things. Probably read a lot of the same books, listened to the same podcasts. Like, and my conclusion was that all that information is useless unless you have a system to your language. Like, we actually call it a personal operating system now. Like, that's how I talk about it because unless you have a system that you can that you can basically make very consistent, so that it takes the decision making away from you in that sense. Like, you can stop worrying about it because you have a set system, right? That's all the information. Like knowing that something is good for you is not good enough. Doing it once in a while is not good enough. Being consistent, even if it's on a very small scale, is what makes the biggest difference. I think when people hear the word system too, uh, I have to believe that most people's back hairs just go up and that they get really nervous because you, when you think of a system, you think of, of something that's constraining you, that's not creative, that it's like it's something that that is going to be so rigid yeah. um, and 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 controlling that you're going to lose autonomy over your day and. What's I think what's interesting about it is that it is anything but that. Like 
you are running a system whether you recognize it or not right now. Right. So do you want to make choices about that system or do you want to let your the programming of your parents or the programming of something you learned when you were a teenager or the programming you learned in college or whatever like is that what's going to drive you or do you want choice over it? Like do you want to do you want to make clear decisions about it? I love what Jocko says. Jocko says discipline equals freedom. And uh, Jocko Willink, he's like a crazy military guy. He has a podcast now. He's pretty entertaining. But I've I've always considered myself a highly creative person. I'm a musician. And I always thought, similar to our earlier conversation, I wanted unlimited freedom. And that's, but what I found is like by, by having a system, it creates the freedom for you because you stop making decisions about the things you don't need to. You, by having discipline, you suddenly have the time to do the things you want to do, and you're you're not distracted, and you're not burning that first hour of your day on YouTube and and, and anything else, um, or the three hours in the evening. Suddenly, like time frees up, and you're doing all sorts of projects, and you're researching interesting things, and you have meaning and depth in your life. So, like that's that's been my experience, and I just but you're right, people's the hair on people's the back of people's neck definitely spikes up. So I think a big part of our our role as we start to figure out how to market this and, and communicate this program is it's it's worth it and it's not about it's not a, about restriction it's about freedom actually. Do you think that is it or not? Not do you think do you is it is it possible though that that another way to think about it is is and maybe once you once you believe in this perspective maybe it's that first step that we talked about earlier which is all about identification. Your mind is is wired to do its best not to allow you to self actualize, right? Because so much of self actualization is disruption and change and growth, which is a hard thing to do, and for the most part, a very inefficient thing to do. Wow, incredibly inefficient, right? That's super interesting. Yeah. And and so you're kind of pre wired not to do the things that so much of what all of us are fighting really hard to do every single day and only out of that recognition that you're in this battle with your with your with your genetics that maybe you can recognize that maybe some of the habits that you're doing on a day-to-day basis that are all these 1% are going to have a massive outcome on the life that you live you're not realizing that your brain is absolutely in conflict with with your your the goals that you believe are really close to your heart that's so interesting if I, and in my mind, what you're speaking about is the, like the ego, basically trying to maintain control and just say, "Hey, we got this. Like, keep moving forward. Don't don't do anything crazy. Uh, yeah, don't disrupt. I have a like I have a system. Don't worry about it. I got this. Right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really interesting. Again, people having to, I guess, reach the conclusion that they're willing to disrupt that and to start to interrupt that. Yeah, and hopefully just like a little bit of the the recognition that that maybe you're working against the system or the system isn't your mind isn't working the way that you think it is. Maybe you don't actually own it to the same degree that you think that you do mm-hmm. because of these evolutionary criteria to be able to to be able to uh, procreate, right? Yeah. And to be able to to be able to survive. And so nature of work was was incredible at just helping me understand that some of these systems that I, that I was running were actually really really good and it was it was I found um, reinforcing and and like it felt great that I'd made good healthy decisions and then there's other parts of my life where I just recognize that I need to make some change otherwise I should I should add up all of those bad habits and I should think about the outcome of what they're going to look like when I'm 70 years old uh, Marcus Aubrey uh, own your day is a really Interesting book, and I, I didn't. I, I read um, 
ninety percent of it, I, I after a while, I, I found myself kind of boring of some of the content. But yeah, but what I really appreciated about the book was the power that you know when you when you boil things across, when you take a decision that you make every single day and you look at it throughout, you can see the outcome that it will have. But then you know that you have another the entire life to make up for it. And when you start thinking about decisions like the decision to have a hamburger. Right when you know that you have an entire lifetime to make up for it, you might make the decision to have that hamburger today. Same thing over a year, same thing maybe over a month. But when you know that your goal is is a certain identity, and you don't have weeks, months, or years to make up for it, you only have today. You probably make the decision maybe not to have that hamburger because you don't want to feel crappy for the next couple hours or something. Like yeah, like when yeah. you really start to look at things from that perspective, I think now really helped me with that. Yeah, and it's really focused on that, right? Like. Very small daily things. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because at the end of the day, what 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 it does a really good job of is, and it, it's iterative, but it kind of gives you a scorecard mm-hmm. at the end of your day to know how you're doing. And there's something that just feels so great about knowing that, you know, you can see some data that's going along with these decisions, and it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, like I'm winning a bit here. Yeah, and and it's not, you it might not be noticeable to others, but I know that I'm up a few points right now, and that just feels really good. Yeah, daily is a nice way to measure also because it the stakes aren't like in some cases you can make better decisions in the moment, but also the stakes aren't super high because you can self-correct pretty easily, right? I think it's actually Jim Collins, like we one of the questions in the journal on a very on a daily basis for all nine weeks is, you know, how is today out of, rated out of five? What could have been better? What made it great? But basically just that small analysis of the day is a lot easier than going, oh, like how is July? You know what could have been better in July. It's it's really hard to or how did this year go? And you might have some themes and have some sense of what happened, but on a daily basis, you can really go, yeah, you know what? Like when I went on Netflix instead of hanging out with my wife, or when I did this instead of doing that, like that didn't feel very good. That would have been better. Like that could have been better. If you don't, um, if you don't have. Daily check-ins with yourself, and and you get to the end of the month, and you're in your goal focus. Like you're you're right. Like the things that have happened in the last three days will probably have a huge influence on judging like how successful that month was. And if that's how you're looking at things, it's going to be really hard to make change. Mm-hmm. It feels like uh, our our culture over the last few years, and maybe the, I don't know if it's marketing's always been like this, but there's all this emphasis on future planning and goal setting and visioning. Like that's just a huge thing right now. I think even a couple of years ago it was even bigger, but it was like all these programs for young people, like you could, and all these courses you could take, and all these things you could go to. That was all about having a vision for yourself, which I think is actually really important. And for a lot of people to to think about where they want to be in twenty five years is a, a great conversation to have. But to your point, it means nothing. It's like it's like an illusion if it's not okay. Well, what is 25 years from now, well, what does that mean for this week and today and like the next hour, right? Oh like, man, the, the goal setting thing is such an interesting <laughs> dialogue. Yeah, do you set? Do you set? Uh, like, how, how do you think about goal setting? I think the way that I thought about it maybe a few years ago and the way that I think about it now are they definitely, even though they're probably the same on paper, and if somebody was to observe how I goal set, they would think nothing has changed. But the way that I think about goals today are just so different. Like, I, I really believe in them. I, I believe working towards something. Uh, we talked a little bit about spirituality um, uh, the last time we connected, and and it kind of overlaps to me with with goal setting. But my biggest 
I would say aha moment around that topic is is the realization that a goal is kind of useless. I think it's I think what's far more powerful is the identity that goes with that goal. Because just to say that I and a really good example of this is um, James Clear talks a lot about this in a, in, in a, Atomic Habits. I think that's his name, James Clear, in, yep. in Atomic Habits. Yeah. And I really appreciate this perspective, and it it really meant something to me. Um, when you think about a goal, it's like I want to be a runner, or sorry, I uh, I want to run a marathon, and that's the example that he uses. You know, you start making decisions on 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 the run. But but to run a marathon is so much more all encompassing than just than just trying to run some kilometers, right? Yeah. And so if you adopt the identity of of becoming a runner, and you begin to think about like what decisions would a runner make and what do they do, that's far more wide reaching than just running ten k every day. Right. Like how do we sleep? How do we how do we eat? Like how do we like we need to stretch and we need to hydrate and. What is it? Yeah. What does it look like and feel like, and all those components? Hey. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And when you start to build that identity, like in your mind, which maybe that's the difference between some that are unsuccessful with achieving goals and some that are really successful with achieving goals, but they just don't talk about it the same way. Um, visualization techniques are so important to hitting goals, and I think what visualization really helps you to do is build that identity of like, what is it going to feel like to cross that line? What is it? But then also, what is it going to feel like at the end of each day up until my race mm. for me to eat well, sleep well, exercise well, you know, and to understand the mechanics of running? Like, it will feel different. And if you do a good job of visualizing that, which is another way of talking about building that identity, maybe out of all of that, um, the probability of hitting that goal is just Far higher. I I do a ton of training right now for um, for triathlons, and even up until like maybe six months ago, or or maybe even three months ago, I, I don't know when the shift happened. If you ask me, Ryan, are you a runner? Or Ryan, are you a cyclist? I would say no. And really? Yeah. Yeah. Still, like even at even then, I uh, and at those times, like you know, I'm 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 training fifteen to seventeen hours a week. I probably run and cycle more yeah, than for people who don't know Ryan. Ryan is definitely a runner and. Cyclist. And and what's so interesting about that is I had not adopted the identity that I was a runner or a cyclist. And the second that I believed, recognized that I didn't have that identity and that I was just I was just kind of moonlighting and running and 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 still running crazy hours. Like I I I'd put in massive kilometers every every week and every month. Only when I like recognized the identity that going with a runner and said that yes, I'm a runner. Mm. Um, all of a sudden, my time started dropping like crazy because I started making better conscious decisions that that were around that that concept, around the running, around the running, around the fact that I was a runner and yeah. a good runner, around the concept that I was a cyclist and a good cyclist. That's so interesting. One of the things I think a lot, like the most about in terms of one of the things I think is like whatever my folks did, and I appreciate is that they. Or maybe you know how much of it's just, just born with this or whatever. But I I've, I've always had the sense that if I can see something, then I can do it, and I can like I can have a vision for something, and then I have to do the, have the discipline to do it right and get there. But like I've always I've always known that if you you have to be able to see it to your point, you like have this vision of being able to do that. And I I've always thought a lot about how do you how do you can you teach that can you can you how do you get someone there who's got more self-limiting beliefs or uh, fear or um, yeah, lack of confidence, all those kind of things? Like, is there a way to get them around that bend? Because like, 
I think to me, it's like a huge amount of the battle is just knowing that it's possible. And as soon as you know it's possible, maybe the discipline part is way easier. Right. Right. Like it's easy to be disciplined when you you can just see the end that you're going for. And I don't think that means like I'm not. Su- I, I've I've learned to not be super attached to the goal or the metric that I'm trying to hit because ultimately it, it doesn't really matter. It's the process and it's the steps. Like setting a goal is fine, but but it's more so the steps. But having the vision for it is so so key, right? Totally, and and so much easier easier to get started if you just give yourself a lot of leeway and just try to move it in like really small increments. Yeah. So. You know, there's a there's a a new habit that I about a week ago, actually, as you and I started talking, through there's there's some things that uh, in setting up for this conversation, there's some things that I recognize that I that I wasn't necessarily proud of, and I want to chase down. And the first step was was I started think, thinking about how I would do it, and I set a goal, and then I realized that that's that's going to massively fail. I'm not going to do this. I've had this goal many times. It's never worked. Uh, I've never been able to change this habit, and then. I, I took a step back and said, "Okay, let's let's not go to the end and think about you know me doing this thing three hours a day. Let's start at what if I just did it for two minutes every day? Yeah, right. So tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm only going to do it for two minutes. And at two minutes, I'm going to I'm going to close my laptop and I'm not going to do it after that. That's it, just two minutes. And it was so easy to wake up and do something for two minutes because I knew it was going to go by so fast. And what I found is is like instantly, I was spending." An hour, which would which scared me at the beginning of the outset, but I was spending an hour every single time doing this goal, and I think I think that that's a degree of what you're talking about, which is which is, you know, setting yourself up for success. And part of it was was the recognition that I had something I needed to change, thinking about the end goal in mind, but then being really, you know, open with myself to take a long time to get there. Mm-hmm. Didn't need to happen overnight. Yeah. That's super cool. I I I think it's super important when you look at all the habit research. It's that's what it all like it all boils down to is make make small incremental things, set goals that you can achieve. Like the 2 minute thing is a great hack because your amygdala goes, "Yeah, okay, you can have the 2 minutes." Like, I don't need to conserve energy. I go for it. And then you build trust with yourself that you can do it, right? And it gets easier. Yeah, and it, it feels like yeah, you you get the, some of this early momentum and and it's easy to get lost in it. And if you're the type of person only like yourself or like like me, I think just knowing that you called it a hack, that's the perfect way to talk about it. You can trick your body into adopting a habit really easily as long as you can convince your mind that it's going to be very simple. Yeah. The habit I was thinking, because something you asked me earlier about, um, you know, why is it so hard sometimes to say meditate or to exercise and things? And like when you look at that, when creating habits is it, it like it's a cycle and it starts with a trigger. And so, to your point, like setting a time when you're going to start it, being really consi- like specific, doing it consistently at the same time every day, same place every day, whatever as consistent as you can be. But it ends, and there's steps in between. But it ends with a reward, and the reward indicates that you should do it again. But a lot of the things that we're talking about, whether it's like building a company, whether it's uh, running a triathlon, which is a tremendous amount of work, or even just becoming a, a solid jogger. Or learning to meditate, like these are not things that you do once. You don't go for your first jog and be like, "Wow, that feels amazing! I'm so good now. I love jogging." It's obviously you actually are probably exhausted and your legs hurt and you wake up stiff and you know, like it takes a while before your body goes, "Oh, I love jogging. It's really good for me. I feel great about it." Same thing with meditation. First, you're just like, "This is frustrating and annoying. I don't get it." 
this is way harder than I thought it would be. And it takes, I think generally it can take weeks and months for it to make any sense at all. And some people take 10 years <laughs> if they're going deep on it, right? Right. Or 50 years. The power, uh, as I've, I've, I've experimented with meditation and certainly doing my best to incorporate it into my daily. And even the fact that I'm just saying I'm doing my best is kind of ridiculous because I know it's like a really positive habit and, and uh, I still haven't built in, in a way like the vision or the identity of, of the power of meditation for myself. So I haven't taken that work on. And I know that until I do, I will not be yeah, and that's, doing this. That's a choice later. and that's fine, right? Yeah. And, and so, but when I think about, um, when you think about how, what we talked about a little bit earlier around the brain fighting you on these new habits, and you think about meditation, the outcomes of meditation, for me, how would I liken this? I would say that people, it's a hard thing to get, it's, it's one of the hardest things I think to get really good at. You know, and I think that that's one of the reasons why meditation has been so challenging is because yes. this is not something, I think it's easier to become a, uh, a runner than it is to become someone that's, that, that can find ways to reflect and, or, or whatever form of meditation you're practicing, whether it's TM or it's something else, mm-hmm. um, to be able to reflect or to find silence. Like to shut your mind off is like, it's a, it's a skill, man. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I'm kind of curious that if you, how, how long did it take for you to go from someone that didn't meditate to somebody that feels relatively competent in it? Well, I think I was meditating like I would say the average person, like the average kind of contemporary Western person meditates today, which is like uh, I, I had that sort of practice for, I don't know, years where it's like maybe two minutes, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes felt really long. It was Usually a guided meditation, like so, so, like so a headspace, yeah, headspace, or which which is great. Like honestly, I think anything is great, um, but I don't think I had. So I think I was doing that for years, but I, but to your point, I wasn't, I wasn't investing more than those couple of minutes in it. I wasn't reading about it. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to get better at that. I think, you know. We we have to make choices. We have everything's a trade off about time and attention. And you know you're really focused on 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 your physical practices around training for a triathlon. You're raising uh, kids. You're a really active father. You're running a business. Like you just have to make choices, right? Um, and so I think for a lot of years I was just doing that with meditation. And um, honestly, like just like the Ram Das or something like that. But it was it was. It was my first um, deep dive, like mindful psychedelic experience that led me to go. I came out of that psychedelic experience saying, "Oh, that's what meditation is like. That's the point. Like it's to get back to that point without any substance." Because I think the most psychedelics, all they're doing is is opening your consciousness in a way, and you can do that. Your brain can do that. But it's practice of allowing your brain to stop being vigilant and processing, and like you have to, you have to, you have to get control over the brain and let it do its thing, and then your consciousness opens up. So, I came out of that first psychedelic experience, and it wasn't my first ever, but it was my first where it was, it was an intentional, guided, you know, 
um, experience, I came out of that realizing, oh, that's why there are monks that will spend 40 years meditating because they're sitting there on a floor somewhere having this experience all day long. Like they are having this ecstatic consciousness expansion just from sitting. And I want to do that too. I want to learn how to do that too. Right. So it was like a whole, it was like a, it, I guess, you know, bring it full circle on that vision kind of aspect. It was like, I could see it now. I could see, oh, that's a thing that I want to be able to achieve. And so it felt a bit like, um, like a short, it wasn't, a, I don't know if it was a shortcut, but it was able, it was, it allowed me to go to that first 10 day meditation. And I think come out of that first 10 day meditation with a much deeper understanding than perhaps some other folks there. Maybe not, I don't know, but it just, it, it felt like it at least got me there and let me know what was possible in, in, in that state. And not, and, and to this day now, so now where I feel like I'm at is I, have, I try and stick to 30 minutes a day. When I feel like I'm going through something emotionally challenging or I'm trying to wrestle with something, honestly, when like all the um, Black Lives Matter stuff kicked up and like the protests started, and I felt like there's a lot of tension and a lot of different voices and information, and I actually doubled my meditation at that point. Uh, that was my the best thing I could come up with as a response was I need to meditate more because I need to process what I'm feeling about this, and I need to like I need to just yeah process. Um, so now I feel like I'm in a place where I'm pretty consistent, and some days are awesome and really beautiful, and some days are super distracted meditations and I feel like every five seconds I'm thinking about some work related bullshit, you know? <laughs> so it's like it's a practice, it's a lifelong practice and it, it's just gonna go like that. The psychedelics is uh is is a pretty hot topic right now as well. It is, yeah. Right. And and just the exploration of it, there's you know, there's there's notable, you know, podcast celebrities like Tim Ferris that that are dedicating yeah, he's and, really switched his whole like that's his main thing now, and and seeing like how he's he's been able to to maybe change the narrative to some degree around it, but then he's also been able to uh, to support that with financial commitments um, uh, towards research. Yes, I I started reading and and following the power of psychedelics probably about a year and a half or two years ago. And um, what what uh, I mean, what sparked it? Your I think, interest I think the, in understanding it. So there's a, a book called Stealing Fire. You read it? Ah, uh, yes, I have. Yeah, um, by Jamie Wheel. Yes, is that Jamie Wheel? Uh, I want to say Wheel, and there was another author on it, but nonetheless, yes. yeah, yes. And um, that was interesting because it talks a lot about flow states, yeah. and it talks about some of the ancient rituals around using substance in order to achieve a flow state, and then it transitions from psychedelics into maybe some of like the physical activities, that, and it and it literally touches on everything from porn. To uh, to video games, yeah. right, and and ultimately all of them are like state changes where you're able to find a degree of flow and create like a stir moment. And so it started with me on that book that was recommended by one of my forum mates, and I loved it. Wilnick is in that one; uh, he's quoted a few uh, a few times, right? Jocko Wilnick. And then from there, I went into Michael Pollan. That was a book that was published around the same time. Michael Pollan, change your mind. Yeah, how to change your mind. Yeah. And that that would, book has been huge in terms of changing the narrative or mainstreaming the narrative. I thought it was just such like what I loved about it. It was someone that was absolutely anti psilocybin um, and and anti uh, substance uh, use in right. order to achieve a different state. 
and seeing him go down that, 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 that journey of learning and then landing in a place where he recognized that there's a lot of power that came out of this. And, yeah. and, and it's so easy to forget like the, 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 the political influences on, on why some of these substances are banned. Mm-hmm. Right? And maybe psychedelics is one of them. I don't have an, an opinion on whether it should or should not be, but I, I definitely recognize that like most things that, that, that change your state of mind, there's probably some use of them mm-hmm. or, 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 or some purpose behind them. So, so it started with that. And, and then just from there, it was just like constantly wanting to just learn more about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a degree in, in, in psychology. Uh, that was, oh, I didn't of, know that. That was some of my, my, my early learnings at, Interesting. Uh, at structured education. And then from there, it's just been, you know, very, very interested in, in understanding flow state and understanding how to create these moments where you can be like really in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, training gives me that at times. Yep. Uh, but there's other times where, like writing, I can just get lost for hours. It's an amazing feeling when you get lost in something, right? Yeah. yeah. Music taught me about flow states first. Oh, and when you hit it, it like yeah. you just want to go back to it, and you can't always find it, but but you'll do your best to set up a, an environment that really really allows for it. Yeah, it's really interesting that when you look at the research around flow states and meditation, uh, like if you look at the brain of somebody in flow. In meditation or on psychedelics, it's a very similar brain state um, where your ego is out of the way, uh, and your like it's it's just it's just it's those are the three they, they they come together and it's so interesting that like when I when I read that I understood that I thought oh that's so incredible like that's why I'm drawn to these areas and and that's why psychedelics are so can be so powerful psychedelics have a whole bunch of other things going on but it's, it's super interesting how that that's the case. You, do you think that at some point in the future we're going to see uh, the ability for psychedelics to become mainstream, similar to the way that we're making progress on cannabis and, and the stigma that's really, or the way that cannabis has been really released from the stigma that you know kind of was surrounding it over the last twenty yeah. or thirty years? Yeah, I think. I mean, I like. There's already public psychedelic companies on the public markets. Unfortunately, most of those companies. Are not doing anything real. They're just in the bubble. But um, but it's interesting to see that. Like you 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 see Kevin O'Leary, uh, Mr. Wonderful, uh, endorsing MindMed, a a public uh, psychedelic exploration company. Um, and so so I think like if if you if you look at that, that's really interesting. And then what I've just noticed is that so I've been in the space, you know, back in the space. So. Myself, like many people, had you know I had psychedelic experiences as a teen, you know, as a teenager in my early twenties, kind of thing, that were just recreational and and whatnot. Um, and then I I really stopped for like I don't know at least fifteen years. Like I didn't I I I basically got into business building mode and being a serious adult mode and and all these kind of things and thinking like oh I need to be in control. Um, and then. Uh, in the last few years, started getting really interested in seeing the research that was starting to happen again. So I like in my world, it like it it is mainstream. And the more conversations I have with people, the more I realize that even if they don't think of it as mainstream yet, the stigma is quickly disappearing. And that like there's very few people that I bring it up with because I do it actually as a bit of research right now. It's like just bring it up with people and say like, do their eyes get wide and do they look at me like I'm crazy or <laughs> Do they go like, oh yeah, I've heard something about that, or do they go, yeah, I hadn't heard about that at all, but that's super interesting, 
you know, and just think of it as like a new frontier of science, which is what it is in my mind. I mean, it's an old frontier that's reemerging. It's actually thousands and thousands of years old if we get away from the Western medical model. But yeah, so I, I think I think it's it's already on its way. I think the amount of people talking about microdosing. I mean, Silicon Valley. You look at places that are often on the cutting edge of things. In Silicon Valley, it is like very common to talk about LSD, psilocybin, DMT, microdosing, any of those things. It probably comes up in job interviews quite often. Right. And and where do you think where, where, where do you think the notable changes over the next say over the next five years will be around it? Yeah, I think for me, I'm. Uh, it's really interesting because I. I really, I'm really passionate about the space. I'm actually I'm an advisor to two nonprofits in this space, uh, working in totally different areas, um, and I was approached to head up an early stage investment fund in this space, which I actually turned down. Um, so it's really interesting right now. I'm, I, I feel like a lot of what's happening is what happened in cannabis: is the sharks are out and they're trying to make a quick buck, and they're spinning up. Companies that are doing questionable things or nothing at all, mm-hmm. and not to say that they're all like there's some there's some cool companies doing some interesting things, um, and uh, but like I felt like right now there's a lot of um, froth. Um, however, there's also a tremendous amount of research. So I think what's I think what the the real work that's happening is that MDMA is in stage three trials in the states and it's being fast tracked and it's working at uh, really quickly. So that and and in Canada, I think we'll see MDMA be be the first um, substance that people lump into the category of psychedelics, even though it's not a true, a pure psychedelic. But that will be one of the first things to come up. Um, I'm working with an organization called Theracil that's doing uh, that's basically about to launch a lawsuit against the government to try and get uh, psilocybin approved for people who are in end of life and dealing with cancer. As basically a psychological tool um, to help people uh, find peace with end of life. Find peace. Yeah, because one of the biggest things that happens with psychedelics is um, you get shown that there's a much bigger game than the game we play on the ground, and that there's uh, and 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 that you often experience some form of ego death or some some form of um, realizing that you are not a um, an autonomous entity in this world, that you are part of something much broader, that you are part of a life force on this earth that is much broader, um, and that can be tremendously peaceful if you are thinking about your own death. <laughs> so, like, I feel like I've I've died multiple times in the last two years during. Um... A lot of the, the a lot of the literature and definitely a lot of the bod, like blog posts and podcasts talk about during yeah. guided journeys. Yeah, uh, uh, using something like psilocybin. Yeah, your own death is contemplated. Is it fair for me to ask? Like, was that was that part of some of the vision work that that you sat with when you were experiencing it? In in some of the guided experiences. Yeah. yeah um, First off, I, sh- I feel like I should just quickly answer your question. The last question you asked me, because you said, "Where is this going?" I think medicalization is probably most obvious. I would love to see decriminalization versus legalization. I think I don't know what recreational legalization could look like in this space. I think people equate it to cannabis, but it's not the same ballpark. 
in the sense that cannabis, I equate more to alcohol. It's a, it's a depressant. It's you do get intoxicated, but you, you're not like out of body. You can, you know, like it's very similar to drink. Like you can smoke a little bit of weed and hang out. You can smoke too much weed and be a bit of a zombie. Same thing with alcohol, right? Like it's it's something you can do socially. You people do it recreationally quite often, probably more often than they should. Um, psychedelics, I I think, are in a completely different category. They're they're not something you do every day, and if you do, that's pretty wild. I think one of the, you know, the like I think it's just a different ball game that I, than than cannabis. But people are equating the two because of the regulatory hurdles that have to happen, right? One of the things that I think about with with psilocybin versus like say something like marijuana. Yeah, which I think is really important to think about is is like alcohol, for example, um, especially during prohibition. Like uh, more concentrated forms of alcohol was the easier way to right. was the easiest way to drink, right, and also the easiest way to conceal it, right. And so you weren't drinking five percent alcoholic beverages that were mandated by government and 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 provincially or federally monitored, right. You're drinking moonshine, and who the hell knew? Whether it was seventy proof or one forty proof or even or even stronger, yeah, right. And so consumption and like the ability to just take too much is one of the challenges. And then you find a way with some structure and with uh, the right support from government. All of a sudden, we can have some standardization. So I know roughly how a beer here and a beer over here is gonna is gonna affect me, and so I can make good decisions around quantity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and marijuana is going through that right now as well. Like I'm not. Sure, what your university was career was like, but like I know that marijuana back in for me early two thousands was there's a lot of stigma and it wasn't socially accepted, but it was fairly common among universities. Very prevalent, yeah. yeah. It was there. High school is very prevalent in BC, like totally, yeah, totally, definitely on the west coast, yeah. And uh, and but yet you'd have to buy marijuana from like these unscrupulous characters at times, right? And so control on like how powerful it was, you never really knew, and and of course you'd find maybe a source that. Maybe allowed it to be a little bit more consistent, but ultimately you're rolling dice. Yeah, it's a black market. Yeah, and then you and then you look at like say edibles back then, like marijuana butter, right? And you could take a tablespoon. Not to say that I, that I'm talking about myself taking a tablespoon, but you could. One this could is third hand third hand knowledge. Yeah, yeah. yeah this I've, I've heard. Somebody about this. told you a story. Yeah, uh, a good friend of mine told me the story. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a good story. Uh, but you could take a small amount, um, two different times, really? and if they're from different people, they would have very different outcomes. Right, uh, and I think that's the that's one of may, maybe the biggest opportunities on psilocybin just socially being accepted is like marijuana is relatively easy to control because if you smoked it, like you actually have to work pretty hard at smoking too much. Yeah, and, and there's there's no you're not gonna you're never gonna die from marijuana. Yeah, yeah. whereas you're gonna have a really bad trip or something like that yeah. if you smoke way too much. Yeah. Whereas psilocybin, um, under the right circumstances, if you can understand dosage, yeah, which is relatively easy to control provided the person that is controlling it. Is is thoughtful and also has experience. Yeah. Then in that moment, it's a very well arguable whether you call it safe or not. Everyone has a different perspective. I would propose that it's probably a very safe substance from that perspective. Well, it, it totally is. Yeah. The toxicity levels are almost zero. Like it's it's a much safer substance than Advil, Tylenol, any most over the counter medications we take. Right. You can't die, like there's no overdose known overdose level. Psychologically, it can be very challenging. And it, and doing a, a large amount of psychedelics in an unstructured um, environment or in an unsafe environment can be hugely traumatizing. So, like psychologically, I think there's lots of risks. I don't think there's like 
physical risks. And and you know, there's the like those stories of people doing too much mushrooms or LSD and jumping off a roof or something. I mean, honestly, that's it's mostly myth. But but I think the real risk is the psychological impact. So as I'm really excited to see it come above ground. So to your point, like safety can improve, efficacy of how like when you get into this space, what you realize is that it's all about set and setting. It's all about preparation and and your integration. So what you do beforehand, then the set and setting of your environment when you're doing it, and then the integration work you do afterwards. That's what makes psychedelic powerful. Doing a psychedelic experience may or may not have a profound impact without those other things. Like it'll be intense, but it's not necessarily going to be a lasting impact. Um, you know, like there's there's work to be done before and after to actually. Activate that. I think that that's actually one of the more interesting parts about psychedelics is that it's not the type of substance that you would use, similar for the same reasons as why you might drink or why you, why you might choose marijuana, right? It's not it's no. not the ideal subject or substance to take if you need a, a state of mind change uh, just for a moment. It's 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 one that you're going to move towards for deep introspection, and you're going to have to do a lot of work afterwards. It's work, yeah, to to manage that, right? And then you also understand the the impact of of the environment around it. Um, I was I was at this dinner about maybe half a year ago, and and you'll know some of these names, and and maybe some of the listeners will know these names. But you had Lars Wild, uh, Compass Pathways, you know, serial entrepreneur, but also angel investor, doing some great work in in fighting this fight that you're talking about. So this is this was again during some of the research that I was I was I was doing at the time, and I luckily had some relationships that allowed me to put me at a dinner table with these guys. So uh, Lars was there. You had De- Dennis McKenna, mm-hmm. who's one of the foremost experts on psilocybin. Yes, yeah, um, time with him. Huge author, huge lecturer, very smart guy. I had Will Ahmad, which is uh, the C- CEO and founder of Whoop Bands, which is one of the probably the best data collection. Yeah, I'm wearing one right now. Um, although I after meeting him, I I. I assured people around me that I would never support that company, but but nonetheless, I really appreciate the tech of yeah, it. Yeah, even though I didn't necessarily see eye to eye on the conversation that we had on the values. Yeah. On the values, yeah, the values is probably the big part, and then um, and then also Ben Greenfield, right, right, and so this was like a pretty cool collection of of souls that you know when it comes to wellness, when it comes to uh, perspective around impact flow states, mm-hmm. like all of them are well versed on this. Yeah, and just like hearing that dialogue, and the, and all of them, like passionately believe that within the next five to ten years, you will see psilocybin be treated probably similarly to to marijuana, and you're going to see some incredible outcomes from a from a health standpoint because of that. So yeah, like I I you know I have no you know moral issue with 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 cannabis at all yet. I don't. I wasn't really for or against it being legalized, except for the social, except for the, the the social justice issues, except for the fact that there's a lot of people incarcerated for marijuana and others who smoke it freely. Like that need the the that needed to be level. And still, there's a ton of work to do in the states on that. But like to me, it's like oh, we're adding another depressant. We're adding another um, substance that you can sort of detach from every day. On like sure. Fine, like I'm okay with that, but I was I'm not an I'm not wasn't an advocate for that. With psychedelics, to me, this is a way for us to actually get really tuned in to who we are and what's important to us and to to our surroundings and to the people around us. Like psychedelics is what led me to stop smoking cannabis entirely and effectively pretty much stop drinking as well. Like because I became so passionate about the clarity 
that I wanted to to have in my day to day life. And that doesn't mean I don't have a drink here and there, but it just was like, oh, I want to be super clear. I want to be super connected to my body. Like it gave me this depth of of connection that I now seek all the time. You know, so to me, it's like it it creates the opposite effect of what. Um, Alcohol and cannabis do, and not to say like I think there's some people who who use cannabis and it's really productive and creative for them. And like I'm not I'm not trying to say terrible things about cannabis, you know. But but I do think, but I just think there's like a tremendous amount of like uh, the society needs psychedelics and needs it needs psychedelics in a productive manner. Like it'll be hugely beneficial for society right now. Some of the dialogue that was happening around the table um, during that discussion was centered around, like, part of it was psychedelics, but it was a bigger question around around you have to be open to relooking at all parts of society yes. and and breaking free from norms in order to pursue wellness. And like that was the one key takeaway that I had was it wasn't yeah. just about psychedelics; it's about it's about, about consciousness. Yeah, freeing your mind, right? Yeah. From all these constraints, all these bookends that we've allowed society to create for us mm-hmm. and being really open on with on like on on whether they are powerful for our well-being and whether they can yes. impact us. And I think, you know, we're, we're I think right now uh it feels like science is moving towards some of the things that you sh- that you've shared and it also feels like um for some if if you can't achieve through through non-substance states like this whether you want to call it a spiritual mm-hmm. experience or whether you want a, a self-actualization experience. But if you can't, then maybe there's some ways that you can support it. And I think that that's the point is like just however we help people move towards that state, I think, I think you can't deny the positive benefits of it. And the beautiful thing is you can do holotropic breathing and have a fully psychedelic experience. You can do that through breathing. For 45 minutes, you can like 45 minutes of breathing in the right rhythms. You'll you'll have a mushroom experience, a DMT experience, whatever you want. So it's so like, I think the one thing to remember is I I think these substances trigger certain pathways in the brain and 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 open up the brain in a certain way. Though we don't need those substances to do that. Right. And and your other point I think is really important. Like um, that's why I think why I'm so excited about psychedelics is like we're at a we're at a point where we need to relook at the way the systems of our society are structured, how things are working. Um, we are on a path to self termination as a species, like in terms of the way we our energy consumption and and um, you know like we look at our climate and things like that and 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 if it's not climate, it's nukes, and if it's not nukes, it's you know, civil war, and if it's you know, it's like there's a lot of things that we we need to get right pretty quickly. And I think what psychedelics again pulls you out of the game and makes you realize there's a much bigger game that we're much bigger picture that we're a part of. It helps connect you, but it also helps you see that it helps you shake free from the assumptions that you've made your whole life about what is and what isn't and what is right and what is wrong. Like I. I um, I spend I spend a lot of time reading about spiral dynamics. Have you read at all about spiral dynamics? Uh, no more than maybe an hour or two of yeah. watching some videos on it. So. But it's really fascinating. You you've probably seen enough to see that like there's these different tiers of consciousness um, in tier one, and then as you move to tier or sorry stages of consciousness, and as you move into tier two, you start to be in a more holistic view and realize that. Um, there's, there's basically the truth is more subjective. 
an objective and that we have to be very open. And we need to realize that there is lots of different opinions, perspectives, and things, and we need to think more broadly. Like our systems need to be more, they need to be more open. Like even what everything we're talking about in terms of leadership and the way we're shifting in our businesses towards more autonomy and more transparency, and that's messy and hard. But it's a necessary step as things get more complex and as the world continues to evolve. Our consciousness needs to evolve too. I think around all of the systems that we have in the way our governments function, they're not going to be able to hold things together much longer because they can't move fast enough. So unless the consciousness of government elevates, consciousness of organizations and the consciousness of individuals, um, we need that. Like that's what I'm most passionate about. So psychedelics to me is a tool to help fast track that in some ways. It's not the be all end all. It's not the end goal. It's just a tool. I've done some experiences with breath work. Oh, have you? Have you yeah. done holotropic breathing or I have. something similar? Yep. Yeah, yeah, very similar. Um, actually, I've, I've, so I've I've, in, I've I've done probably three or four sessions of of it. Oh, really? And then uh, and then a few others. And you know, those sessions are just. I, I'm lucky enough because my wife was open to it, and she encouraged me. And and you know, I had a in that moment, I was like, yeah, let's do it. And it was you know two months out. And then as we got a little bit closer, I, I started learning a little bit more about it. And then you realize. The commitment that you're making to it, yes. and you know, I found myself in this room with with maybe 150 other people, and I think that that really added to the experience because mm. because there's there's a sense of connectedness. I've done it in small group settings, and I've done it in large group settings, and this, the the large group was really powerful um, because you can feel a collective energy. About yeah, I've never it. done that. That sounds wild. It's the hardest part about it is that you have to have a conversation with yourself about about being super vulnerable, mm-hmm. and you know that. Um, especially if you've done it before, you know that you're going to experience emotions that you have to allow yourself to go to in the presence of people that you don't know. Yeah, right. But but the feeling of that also when you when you begin to hear others going through it, and some of them might be a little bit ahead of you, and others might be a little bit behind you in the experience. Um, but you do find a stir moment in a way, and you also get to a point where where your body is just. Is 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 uh, is this vessel for this this deeper feeling or this deeper meaning? And and when that happens, like I can't I can't imagine. My my my, recommend, my recommendation would be that anyone that has an opportunity, try it. Bree Melanson was uh, was the uh, the journey expert that that I've cool. done it with. Yeah. And then um, since then, I've, I've I was lucky enough to 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 have some guidance, and I I coached a few small groups uh, through it that I was a part of, and it was just. Eye-opening all day long. Yeah, and I think it takes bravery to enter into that space and to have that vulnerability. And what I guess I say to anybody thinking about breath work or psychedelics is understand what you're walking into. Like you are, if you're ready to look closely at your psychology and your psyche and what's in the cave, like what's in your subconscious, unconscious, it can be messy and it's challenging. And you have and and be like I when we talk to folks about. Like when I kind of, I just try to educate people and talk to them, and I have a lot of conversations these days about this. But doing a, a large dose psychedelic experience, or even just doing a, a a true holotropic breathing experience, you're sort of opening a box in some ways to parts of your psychology that are otherwise buried in the like in the habits, and you know you don't really interact with them on a daily basis. So it's a choice, and um, it's a brave choice, and it's an important one. Like, and, and the more that we do that, the more of us that do that. The more we're better to each other, I think, like, and the more we make better decisions for ourselves, because we start to get more connected to who we truly are. 
Yeah, that's that's really well said. Um, you you move into those moments with like really clear intention, mm-hmm. and uh, and sometimes it's in search of some meaning. And and for me, at least specifically with breath work, it was in search of a meaning. And and in other times, it's 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 actually just an openness to like try and understand where you stand, but not necessarily knowing that you know that something is off, but you don't know what it is. Right. And you just need that to come out and give yourself some space to allow that to present itself. Yeah. Um. You know, there there is. I think just coming back to your point on spiral dynamics, I think one of the things that 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 these mind expanding situations allow you to do, though, I think is is. You talked about tears. Really, the purpose, in my understanding, and it's very crude understanding through spiral, but my understanding is that there actually is no truth. I think that that's what you begin to realize. There's only interpretation of what you experience, and that yeah. there's no overarching truth. There's no right or wrong. Um, it is a function of your senses, and and you can boil it down to as something as clear as like what is orange for you might not be orange for me, and and is that orange? Well, who am I to even judge what a color is? Because for all that we know, our are, are, are the way that we've been raised and the genetic predispositions that we have play a role in our interpretation of that. And I think that as you start to kind of open your mind, you start recognizing that there is no right and wrong and that's where it becomes so challenging. And then you layer in moments like today with, with Black Lives Matter. Yes. And it is so hard to get all of this right. Yeah. It's, an, it's, impo- it's, it's actually impossible because, because what one can share to another is a function like how it is interpreted is a function of the experiences that lie behind that being, and so you know you can move in with the best of intentions to a conversation, but still the one the person on the receiving end walks away with such a different such a different meaning. And um, it's I think it's 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 important that as we chase down these really important um, equal opportunity and in some cases maybe equal outcome um, that we also keep in consideration about. The challenge around it, and making sure that we have that dialogue as much as the other, because if you don't have, if you don't, if you have, if you have one without the other, the end result is what we see on on Twitter, which is like crazy emotional reactions without perspective, without accountability. Yeah, that has insane impacts on people's ability to share and and how they feel about themselves. Like you can you can share something on Twitter, and have meant it so well, but because you wrote it at the wrong time, because you didn't use the right nouns versus pronouns because because potentially you didn't yeah uh, you didn't have enough of a disclaimer uh, part of it sure um, it can be interpreted and and reshared and and reframed and it's, it's all outside it, of your control yeah it's honestly it's uh, first off what you just said about there being no truth I love that you said that and I resonate with that so much I think the more you get to understand things you realize that truth is purely Subjective, right? It's all based on impression. You and I can be in the exact same room, have the exact same conversation with a third person, walk away with a totally different impression of what just happened, right? And that's a simple example, but that's true. And then when you look at these big issues, these issues go very, very deep. And and I think right now we're in a position where the internet makes us believe that there's truth to be found at every turn, right? And it's all intellectual. Like it's an intellectual truth. It's like a brain. It's like our mind. It's like a bunch of brains, and there's no body. It's like, and and it's uh, it's really challenging because there's so much shaping to the narrative that we're exposed to through algorithms, through um, the intentions or the the 
what what the news you know what uh, what news media is actually doing, like why they're presenting certain information and what their narrative is and what the outcomes that they're looking for are. Not necessarily outcomes in society, but could just be trying to make money by making you watch their news more, right? Um, so there's all this shaping happening, this algorithmic uh, filtering happening, and then a lot of people looking at their Instagram feed and thinking that's the truth. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Like that's the other thing I did when when Black Lives Matter kick, kicked up. I've been li- like, and it sounds silly, but like since listening to uh, funk music when I was thirteen, and then rap, like I've I've listened to a lot of black music my whole life, really, my whole adult life. It gave me a connection with the black struggle and the black American struggle, particularly, but like. So I've always resonated with the issues of those of those communities. So I, I feel very sensitive to those issues. And I think what's happened around Black Lives Matter is a lot of misinformation and confusion and fingers pointing in the wrong direction so that there's not the right constructive conversations to move these issues forward. And it's really scary. Like it's it's um a really challenging time that we just I hope that people spend the time to research and, and understand. Um, that these convers- that these these challenges are super deep, and there's you can't read one blog post and get any sense of what's going on. Oh, my. I mean, like we're opening up like a whole. Oh my god, that like is a, a big box. Yeah, yeah. Though um, <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm gonna just hit on the last the very last point that you made there. Although there's a few that that. I could spend all yeah, afternoon talking about. We're like way over time. I'm so. sorry. This, it's this, all good. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. Uh, the piece around around research, right? And we're just in this society, and we and, and I'm sure that all of us are practicing this in, in moments that we don't even recognize. But we we are just like a mile wide and just just less than an inch thin. Like mm-hmm. we don't go deep, right? Um, and anyone that really does, and it, you don't have to go to a uh, an, an incredible depth, but anyone that does go. Uh, deeper than than the rest, uh, what they're able to accomplish with it is is so incredible because we have so much access to information, yes. right? Like it is so easy to to understand and to learn in, in today than it was thirty years ago pre-internet. But the, the, for me, the and so that that definitely resonates with me. And then the other piece that I that I really struggle with is that we have we have real challenge of equal opportunity um, across the world, and it is it is a global conversation. Um, and 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 it's required that that those that are going to engage in it, I think, need to have some responsibility and some ownership of understanding um, the power of culture and the power of tribalism. Mm-hmm. If you don't, it's really hard to have a fair conversation about this. Yeah. Because what one society will take um, as privilege um, can be completely different in another society or in another culture. And 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 you know the real, from my perspective. I think that that deserves some thought, and I think that we all have to think deeper. And this is why it's probably such a powerful conversation. All of us have to think deeper about how we can show up and make sure that we we're not being that we don't have blind spots, and that we can do better, and that we can be a little bit more conscious. Because again, we talked about the mind, and its number one uh, priority is efficiency yeah. of habit through influence of our of our nature, of, or sorry, of our environment. You talked a lot about about that. Yeah. And so I think about that piece, and it's like if you can recognize that it, the mind is trying to be efficient, and it's absorbing all of this information over the last, you know, over the last 20, 30, 40 years of your life, mm-hmm. that impacts how you're processing it, and you need to pay attention to that. So that's what we're talking about around, I think, equal opportunity. 
But then the real privilege, the real problem with, with all of us is the notion that your opinion is more important or might matter more than others. And there's some that recognize that there is no truth, and we touched on that today. But the real challenge is, is the notion that not everyone has thought about it like that. And so if you can understand that conversation or that, or you can appreciate that perspective with the one that we're pursuing, then I think you have the real opportunity between the two to find, um, to find uh, yourself in a place where you can make a better decision. Mm-hmm. But when you think about Twitter, like it feels like the former is not happening with the latter. And and it just becomes so toxic. No, and you have to, like in in my mind, it's a it's a sort of a three step process. One, like if you're gonna think that you can form an opinion around an issue as as complicated as like say uh, uh, equity and equality in a society, right? But to me, it's like you can you can you you need to do a ton of research. And actually, Daniel Schmachtenberger um, is a guy I've been listening to a lot. He popped out of kind of nowhere recently. Super intelligent guy, but one thing he says is like, if you read a very compelling article about or a book or anything, you read a compelling piece of narrative around a subject. If before forming an opinion that sides with what you've just read, like you find it very compelling, it seems right, makes sense, the data seems good. Go find an equally authoritative voice on the other side of that issue so and and of equal length and of equal you know sort of status so if you read a book read another book on the other side or read an article on the other side and if you feel like you can parse the difference between the data that they're each sharing and the and the perspective they're sharing and you can clearly understand which one is correct then you have the like you know enough about that subject to have an opinion and if you can't then you don't. You shouldn't hold a strong opinion. Like you should continue learning. Um, and I found that super compelling. Yeah, that depth is 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 so important. Like you just before you form, and especially with 140 characters, it is easy to think that you have the whole story. But how could you possibly have the whole story from 10 exchanges on such a small character base? Especially with algorithms, right? Especially when. If you like one thing, you will be shown five more of those things, and sooner or later, all you're seeing is those things, and therefore you are basically in a in a in a space where it seems like everyone agrees with you. So of course that must be right, and you and and right now we're in this like uh, I mean I think it's actually a smaller percentage of the population than than you others would believe, but that are very vocal and kind of like attacking anybody who says otherwise in this kind of like. Woke trolling thing that's going on on the internet. Um, I think it's actually a small vocal minority, and 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 that's going to shift again quickly. But it's it's an interesting time. Like you just you have to work hard to dig up that information, and because there's no true objective truth, I think the last step is to sit with that information. And for me, it's in meditation, but in whatever your contemplation practice is, sit with it and feel about what feels right in your body, and go forward with that. You were you were talking a little bit about. Uh, algorithms and the power of them to shape us, and and I attended this this um, small group talk by Christopher Wiley uh, from Cambridge Analytica about about the digital science yeah. and and the weaponization of influence using military personnel, military contracts in order to be able to influence. Uh, it is the new warfare. It is, isn't like absolutely. It really is, and and I think that that's the biggest struggle. Which leads into my and when you think about that perspective, and I don't know what the right term for it, like 
that horsepower or or that 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 expertise or that like literally the science of how to influence people and becoming better and better at it every single moment using both uh, organic intelligence, but then also using uh, pure algorithmic intelligence and and just machine learning on this. And then you think about that question, or sorry, that opportunity posed with the power of social media. Do you think that for conversations like Black Lives Matter, like Black Lives Matter, or others, do you do you think that social media helps? Yeah, that's uh, well framed too, because I think of Facebook as one of the most um, powerful weapons ever created, and with totally, they did not have any intention to do that. Their intention was to manipulate by far. Like they've been trying to manipulate us for a long time, but only really to sell advertising. Ninety-eight percent of the revenue comes from our attention. You know, looking at ads. So that's the model they're in. And now people have weaponized that in a way that's incredibly dangerous and. Right now, none of these companies will admit it, right? So Facebook is a billion, multi-billion-dollar company that makes ninety-eight percent of its revenue off the weapon it's created. So, so they're really afraid to do anything about that. So, to answer your question succinctly, though, the internet was designed to to create freedom of information, and in a in a pure sense, that is powerful and important and great. Like the fact that we can have these dialogues and have access to data, and if we have the hours in our day to do the research, which a lot of people don't even have the privilege of that, um, it's an amazing tool. Do I think social media itself in its current incarnation is good for the conversation? I do not. I think it is tearing apart. I think it's tearing apart society. Like because, and not because of the idea that we should be able to organize online and communicate with one another and share ideas. That in itself is a important, beautiful idea. But because these platforms are inherently designed to manipulate us, and that any actor who wants can 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 leverage that, it inherently becomes a it's a, a medium that cannot work. Like it's just it's just not going to function. That is, it's like a, it, it's like sorry, it's like radio is a fine medium, but when in China the only radio or in Russia the radio you get is state owned radio and it's all propaganda, is that a good medium anymore? Like it's not at all. Right. Plus the fact that it's like this short form anger and you know, the anger inducing is all the algorithm. Again, the manipulation, the fact that these platforms were built for manipulation makes them prime for anger and for division. Right. It's it's just incredibly polarizing. Yeah, it is, yeah. And I, I kind of liken it to maybe my Netflix a little bit. And yeah. I think that this is how crude I think about it. But if I if I jump onto my profile on Netflix, I see a version of the world. Um, that is definitely aligned with the preferences that I've indicated to Netflix are important to me. And yet, when I jump on my wife's Netflix profile, I don't even understand what I'm looking at. Like I've never, I've never seen these titles in my life. Yeah, you know, I'm like, where, what is this, and 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 why do I not have access to it? Right. And and I think about social media the same way. And although that's really clear to most, because most of us have a Netflix account, and you realize that it builds really well to your profile versus versus your significant others. Or even better to my children's, right? Right. Um, I think about it. I think that it would be better, or maybe we could have better dialogue around it if people recognize that the purpose of Facebook is about data segmentation and group segmentation. It is 100% focused around segmenting into small groups 
that can be aligned around common purpose for the purpose of influencing. Mm -hmm. So that if you know that if there's runners out there, if you know that there's people that are very passionate about oat milk, or there's people that are like care deeply about uh, their next Audi purchase, the purpose of Facebook is to understand that pool, understand their preferences, and then become very good at marketing, advertising towards them to influence an outcome of purchase, right? And in in that case, maybe we're some people, maybe all of us are okay to have that degree of influence. The challenge is, is that on these conversations around injustice or opportunity or equal outcome, it is the same mechanics at work, right? And although we think that maybe that's okay when you're purposing ads, for me, because I want to know that Lululemon has a sale on, when it comes to the conversation of the narrative around Black Lives Matter, this is a completely different outcome, but it's equally or even maybe even more important to have the recognition, recognition that it is polarizing groups for influence. Yeah. And I maybe wouldn't even separate them that far because if all these platforms are trying to do is make us feel bad about ourselves so that we consume more stuff, or not even feel bad about ourselves, but feel like we're inadequate or feel like that we will be happier by consuming, and they're weaponizing, like marketing has been around and really since the 50s, 60s, that's when it really kicked in in a meaningful way. Propaganda has been around forever. Now, so, whether that it's probably more benign or like less less directly harmful, but then if you look at the impact on the planet right now of consumerism and of um, of uh, people kind of being out for themselves and trying to become billionaires and like the mentality that marketing has created is every bit as dangerous as anything else we're facing right now. So I don't know if I'd separate the two so much. Right, all 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 as one and and all dangerous. Yeah, and 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 we need to figure out. We need to figure out a new way to leverage the internet in a way that we can connect in meaningful ways. Um, so I think people often get mad at me because they think I got called. Uh, my favorite thing I've ever been called is an old man yelling at clouds. Um, some some person say, "You sound like an old man yelling at clouds." Uh, I've never heard that before, but it's fantastic. Um, but the <laughs> but uh, but just. People people get mad because I'm they think I'm saying oh technology's all bad and it's all like we need to turn it all off. I just think we need to be aware of what the intentions are of these platforms and what they're actually doing and hold them accountable if they're you know and 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 probably just actually make better decisions. Say you know what we need to turn you off because you don't you don't you're not helping us function in any way. If you turned off Facebook. New things would spin up overnight, and whether hopefully better things would spin up overnight, but people can make new choices. It's like, yeah, uh, I could go further, but I'll leave it there. I think we have to stop for part two and wait for part two. I don't know, a cliffhanger on this episode. I didn't even answer or ask any questions. You asked me half as many questions as I asked you, so I really appreciate this conversation. I've I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. Um, definitely feel like we could do this. Yeah. Uh, again, I'd love to partake in part two. You'll have hey, me back. Awesome, man. I'd love it. Um, you know, one of the one of the I I, I did have a, a few questions for you that I was going to pose and drop on on your lap at the very end. Um, but maybe what I'll <laughs> maybe what I'll do is I'll save those for the next okay for the next part. Yeah, I have many more questions for you as well. So I look forward to it. Great. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Thanks, man. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can follow along with my life on Instagram at Steve Rio. 
And for show notes and more information about the podcast, visit natureofwork.co forward slash podcast or find us on Instagram at natureofwork.co. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, how to increase the quality of your work while lowering stress and anxiety, you definitely want to check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system that has transformed my work and the quality of my life and how I feel every day. And with that, I'll leave you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.